welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Helen Lackner. Helen has worked in Yemen since the 1970s and lived there for close to 15 years. She's written about the country's political, social, and economic issues. Helen is a regular Arab Digest contributor and the author of Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, published by Verso in 2019. It's a seminal study of the current war and what lies behind it. I recommend it highly. Helen, uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. The United Nations Security Council Panel of Experts report on Yemen was released at the end of January. Can we establish, first of all, what the report is and what it's intended to do? Yeah, it's a report that basically comes out annually. It's, it emerges from the sanctions committee that was established in 2014, i.e. before the war started, but after the crisis had become acute. And it was the, it's a sanctions committee, so it's intended to deal with the sanctions set up by the UN. And over the years, it's developed, and it of every year it increases the number of... Um, resolutions it has to address. And it also very much addresses all issues related with international humanitarian law, with basically the, the fundamental fundamentals of UA, of the UN system. So it doesn't just, it primarily deals with uh, weapon smuggling because the original sanctions and particularly after the second resolution, the issue of the arms embargo against the Houthis, but it also deals with any number of other issues that contravene international law or that contravene issues connected with the Yemen with the Yemen situation and Yemen resolutions. Now, you've been through the paper. I've I've had a look at it as well and uh, just a couple of a couple of quotes really that all parties continue to commit egregious violations of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. The widespread use of landmines by Houthis poses a constant threat to civilians. The panel documented an alarming pattern of the repression of journalists and human rights defenders by the government of Yemen, the Southern Transitional Council, and the Houthis. Since the beginning of the conflict, there's been no significant initiative to hold perpetrators of violations to account. Despite some progress made in the past few months, substantial hurdles to principled humanitarian action remain in Houthi-controlled areas. It's a pretty grim list, isn't it, Helen? Yes, I think it is. And I think one of the interesting points uh, from just the quote you mentioned is that it points out that the breaches and the bad things that are being done are done by all parties. And there isn't just one, you know, it isn't just the Houthis who are behaving atrociously. It also includes the government, it includes the, uh, the southern separatists, etc. So I think that's one of the important elements about the the approach of the of the panel is that they actually do look at things, you know, in detail from on all sides and they're not specifically, you know, they're not contrary in fact to resolution 2216 they are not basically putting all the blame on the Houthis. They are putting the blame where it is should be, which basically for most things is everywhere. One of the things that leapt out to me and, and, and probably to you, to you too, uh, $423 million was diverted, laundered, the report says. It's intended to uh, 
help ease the humanitarian disaster. What's the story there, Helen? Yeah, the story there is a bit complex and it is connected with banking procedures, which is not my most special, my specialist topic. So I don't necessarily get it 100% right. But basically what happened is because the Central Bank of Yemen, had, which had moved to Aden, had run out of cash, it was not in a position to provide the letters of credit needed by traders to buy the basic commodities, i.e. basic food and fuel that are needed for the people throughout the country. And so the Saudis put in this two, $2 billion in the central bank, which were designed to basically guarantee letters of credit that the bank would give to traders in order to allow them to buy commodities on the world market. And what actually happened is because they gave those uh, this at a preferential rate, i.e. not the daily market rate of the US dollar, but a specific preferential date rate which changed at different times, what happened is that the, the, the central bank and local banks and the traders, I think all three, basically manipulated this, this gap between the two levels of rates to manipulate and obtain gain this amount of money. And, and the finger pointed squarely at the internationally recognized government, the IRG, and, uh, the, well, the Hadi government. Yeah, absolutely, because this is the central bank in Aden. The central bank in 2016 was split in the sense that Hadi decided to move it to Aden. And so what was left is you now have two central banks, one in Sanaa and one in Aden. Of course, the one in Sanaa doesn't feature in this because the world officially recognizes only the Hadi government. So the banking system does not you know, recognize the central bank in Sanaa. So basically, the only central bank that has relationships with SWIFT and the world, you know, the world uh, banking system is the Aden one. So these things are all happening in under the, that central bank. It, as you said, a complicated story, but it's clear that some malfeasance is going on. And of course, this money that the Saudis put in was intended for humanitarian aid. What is the current situation in, uh, in in terms of the human what's been called the humanitarian disaster in Yemen well it is a humanitarian disaster <laughs> i mean for more than 3 years yemen's been described by the un as the world's worst humanitarian crisis in terms of total figures, I'm not sure if it is uh, that but in terms of percentage of population you know the un is, uh, believes that 80% of Yemenis are in need of some form of humanitarian aid. Not all of them are in need of food aid, but um, but 16 million are in need of food support, i.e. they cannot afford to buy the food they need. And the last time they did a survey to assess the seriousness of the of the food security crisis, which is something they do fairly regularly, they assessed that 16 million people were above category three, which means that they basically do not have enough food or don't have enough money to buy the food. I think the important element to note here is that it's not just the actual food being distributed. The UN doesn't, it does distribute a lot of food, but even a lot of the food it distributes, it buys from the commercial traders because they are the ones who import most of the food. And that's where the our 423 million comes into it again. So we have a situation where 
you know, 16 million people don't get basic nutrition on a daily basis. Um, that is basically because of poverty. And the, the, and the poverty is because of the economy having collapsed and also very much a blockade. The issues with the central bank, which we've just met, talked about, which is also you know, not giving um, facilities for many people, others to import. So what you have is a small group of traders who have the possibility to import and that those are, you know, and the people don't have the money to buy the food. So you, that's one of the main reasons why, you know, you have this famine going on in Yemen. Officially, there isn't a famine. And the UN is accepting that about 50,000 people are under what they call famine conditions. But for many complex political reasons, they have not and they probably won't declare a famine in Yemen. And you have disease stalking the land, not, not just COVID-19. Absolutely. I mean, you know, half medical facilities aren't functioning. You've had a cholera epidemic, which in 2018, I think it was, was the worst in the world. Um, and, you know, diminished in 19 and in 20, it went up again. So in 20, you had something like 230,000 cases of cholera. And um, you have, you know, you have a whole host of other diseases going on. I mean, malaria, stuff called chikungunya, which I can't say I'd heard of before. Uh, a lot of them are mosquito uh, transmitted. And of course, now in 20, uh, since 2020, we also have COVID. Um, and what's happened is in terms of attempting to deal with COVID, some of the other facili of facilities and staff have been diverted. So you're getting less attention to malaria, less attention to cholera, because you're getting a bit more attention to COVID. But you also have a very big, and you have, the figures you have on COVID are absurd in the sense that they're only the figures that are released by the internationally recognized government. In Houthi-controlled areas, there is basically, there are no figures because the Houthis just are, pre, are not publishing anything and they're preventing people from providing information on the situation. And as you say, that's where the majority of Yemenis live is in Houthi-controlled areas. 70% of the population. I want to ask you about the UN. Uh, we're now into its seventh year of the war. How effective has the UN been in all that time? And what has uh, the UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths accomplished in his, what, three years in place? Well, the UN's been involved in initially attempting to prevent the start of a civil war and since the war started in trying to stop it. So the UN's been involved and has had a special envoy in Yemen since 2011. Griffiths is the third of the series and he has now been around for three years. And basically his predecessor, who started more or less when the war started, um, he managed to organize three meetings, two in Switzerland and one in Kuwait. And the third one in Kuwait almost achieved something. It lasted a long time. Griffiths, in his three years, has managed one meeting. That was the Stockholm Agreement in 2018. And the main reason that happened was the, reason, the outcome of the Khashoggi murder, because there had been a failed meeting in September, 
But after the Khashoggi murder, the Trump administration and everybody felt that they had to put some kind of pressure and that the area where something could be done was Yemen. So they put a lot of pressure on the establishment of this meeting that happened in Stock in in, the, in Sweden in December 2018. And that meeting came up with the Stockholm Agreement. Now, the Stockholm Agreement has you know, a number of um, elements, but the only relevant ones are the Hodeida section of it, which did have the impact of stopping the, offense, the coalition offensive on Hodeida and establishing some kind of ceasefire, which stayed relatively effective more or less until last summer. I would say that in the last six months, the fighting has re resumed at pretty high levels, except in the city itself. So I think, you know, and this only other element that succeeded or that achieved anything was an agreement to exchange prisoners, which after the Stockholm agreement was said to exchange 15,000 prisoners, which was a figure that most people knowing about Yemen found extremely weird, to put it mildly. But eventually, and that was, I think, last October, about 1,000 prisoners were exchanged. So we're still a long way from having achieved very much. Um, I think Griffiths hasn't, you know, he's, he, the, the main thing I would say he has achieved was bringing the Houthis into the debate because that, you know, the, his predecessor had managed to fail to develop a, a good relationship with them. I think the other element I would say about Griffiths is that he is sticking with Resolution 2216. Resolution 2216 of 2015 is basically saying... Houthis surrender. It's saying that Hadi is a legitimate president, which is something which is somewhat debatable, but let's leave that aside. But the only other thing that it says is that the Houthis should withdraw to the position they were in basically 2011. Now, the fact of the matter is very simple. It's just between 20, let's say 2014 and 2021, the Houthis have made very considerable advances. They have massive, they, you know, they've control, as we said earlier, 70% of the population, if possibly only 30 or so percent of the geographic area of the country. But they are very much in control and they have their own government. And there's absolutely no way at the moment that they're going to say, thanks very much, we're going home. I mean, it's, it's simply absurd to even suggest it. So the and the second element that is very fundamentally wrong with two two one six is that it talks only about the Houthis and the IRG, the internationally recognized government. It does not mention any of the other forces active in Yemen. Now again, that is completely outside of the realistic situation. I mean, simply listing the forces involved in the fighting in Yemen takes a while. So it's and that's something on which he has not made any progress. So, you know, what the, the essential move is that the UN cannot do anything effective until 2216 has been replaced by a resolution which would permit both the involvement, you know, a recognition of the Houthi actual situation and a recognition of the fact that the internationally recognized government is only one of the parties on the anti-Houthi side. So um, a new resolution could unlock things. I wanted to ask you about the FSO Safra. You've written about that uh, for us uh, here at Arab Digest. That's the abandoned oil tanker marooned in the Red Sea, a looming environmental disaster. 
and the Houthis are preventing a UN salvage operation. Absolutely. I mean, the the Safer is a, it's, as you just said, it's a looming disaster. It could happen any day. And we people have been saying that it could happen any day for the last three years, but that's, you know, that doesn't make it less true. And if it either sinks or blows up or whatever, and this one million barrels of oil are spread around the Red Sea, you know, it will be a major disaster. I mean, according to various sort of technical expertise, depending on the way the wind's blowing and the level of the sea uh, waves and, and currents, etc., it will absolutely certainly affect all of the Yemeni coast, including Hodeida, which would be the port of Hodeida, which would be closed for a period of time. It would also affect mo most of the coast to the north, and it could affect the whole sea, including the other side of the sea. I mean, the Red Sea is not exactly that wide. And it will be both an environmental disaster in terms of, you know, natural uh, corals and other things in the sea and the fish and the fisheries, but also for the coastal communities. I mean, if it if it burns, um, you know, it could spread the most unbelievable quantity of, of incredibly polluting smoke and other things throughout the coast. So it would also prevent agriculture. It could be an absolutely major disaster, which would make most of the previous, you know, environmental disasters of the type, such as uh, Valdez, what was it called? The something Valdez? Exxon Valdez, that's the right name. So, you know, we're talking about a potentially major, 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 incomparable, I'd say, disaster, environmental disaster. And the Houthis are... Basically, they've said they'd agreed to do it. They're constantly going back and forth about allowing the, this team to deal with it. And it's all part of basically of their financial battle with the internationally recognized government. So, in the, you know, over control of cash. I mean, on the one hand, there's the immediate, supposedly immediate issue of what would happen to the cash from the sale of the oil and the sale of the, of the shipwreck or whatever. But that is a bit of a diversion because most experts say that the oil is not you know is worth nothing because it's deteriorated in that time and that the cost of the operation will be far superior to the to the value of anything that would be sold but basically it's it's part of the political debate between the houthis and the rest of the world so they are basically putting at risk um the livelihoods and the lives of thousands, if not more, for some potential political gain. And I think it's the one issue on which, you know, there's, the, the Houthis are definitely, if not exclusively to blame, very in, mostly to blame. Now, one argument that's often made for why it's so hard to end the conflict is that it's a, a proxy war, that Iran is using the Houthis to menace Saudi Arabia. We hear that argument a lot. Uh, what do you make of it? I think it's a totally erroneous argument, which is liable to cause serious further problems because it is, you know, by its very nature, people who believe that argument will take the wrong approach to try and solve the problem. And, you know, it is not a proxy war. The Houthis are not the, you know, they do not take their orders from Tehran. 
And that has been demonstrated more than once. I mean, there have been a number of occasions when Tehran has told the Houthis, don't do something, and they went off and did it. I mean, first taking over Sana'a in 2014, then moving further down to Aden in 2015, you know, and there's also stories that the Iranians have asked the Houthis to provide them with certain facilities, which they haven't, which they've refused. The Houthis have their own policies. When the Houthis and the Iranians want the same thing, then yes, they'll do things that make it look like they're doing the same thing. But fundamentally, the you know, for Iran, the Yemen is an incredibly cheap and easy option mechanism to make life difficult and unpleasant for the Saudis and the Emiratis up to a point. Because their investment in Yemen is minimal. Financially, it's very insignificant. And yes, you know, sending a few boatloads of parts of fancy missiles or whatever, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not an expensive operation. It does not compare with what they're spending in Syria or possibly anywhere else. So I think, you know, the, the suggestion that talking to the Iranians can solve the Houthi problem is mistaken. It's possible, you know, that in the course of discussing a new JCPOA, you know, one could suggest to the Iranians that they might suggest to the Houthis that they might do something, but they wouldn't necessarily do it. And it's not going to be a fundamental element of any debate between you know, connected with Yemen, I think that that's the, and it, it's not, it just isn't a proxy war. I mean, there's another level at which, you know, one's talking about the Southerners and the Emiratis, um, you know, the Southern Transitional Council is certainly much closer to being a proxy to the Emiratis than the Houthis are to being such to the Iranians. But I, again, I wouldn't say that the STC are Emirati proxies. I mean, they have their own objectives and it turns out that at the moment it's convenient for the Emiratis to support them. Now, you, you mentioned the UAE and, and their support for the Southern Transitional Council. That, now, that relationship, uh, if you could go into that a little bit, but also, you know, how likely is it that Yemen could revert to what it was in, uh, you know, 1990? Uh, two states, is that on the horizon? Um. The two states is not on the horizon. A multiplicity of statelets is far more likely to be on the horizon. I mean, the STC claim to represent the whole of the South. They do not represent the whole of the South. They are one of the many Southern separatist factions. Their power limit is stops you know, about 60 to 70 kilometers northeast of Aden, i.e. somewhere between Zinjibar and Shukra, for those who are familiar with the map. It does not extend to the majority of Abiyan. Uh, there is, you know, they are not there, they're barely there in, in Shabwa, and um, they are, their, lim their power is limited. The reason everybody's heard of them is precisely because the Emiratis have given them massive financial support and diplomatic support. So they have a strong military elements, which are primarily composed of Salafis. That raises the question of, you know, why the Emiratis like to support, you know, extreme Islamists when they're opposing other Islamists, which is another issue. 
So the point is that, you know, the the STC claims to represent all of the former PDRY territory. They do not. And I think it's only today or yesterday that the Hadramis have asked uh, President Hadi to formally create the region of Hadramut. When the discussions in the 2013-14 about the re- re- turning Yemen into a federal state, the decision was to make two, uh, two, fe- two regions in the south, one in the east called Hadramut and one in the west, which I forget what it was called. And basically, by asking that, they're cl- you know, the, the Hadramis are making it absolutely clear that they don't want to be under the authority of some outfit like the STC, which they've made clear on numerous other occasions, but this is, you know, one of them. So I think when you're talking about that element, the mistake is to assume that because the STC say they are the South, they are not. And, to ass- and I presume some of the Emiratis must be aware of that. But they seem to think that they can control them, and they certainly financially, a lot of the people fighting and, you know, militaries basically operate on we work for who pays us. So, you know, there is, there is some scope for that. Um, so I think, you know, the importance of that is the presence, the, the continued presence of the Emiratis, the point about the Emiratis is that they, they have said they've withdrawn from the battlefield, which is true. They've, they've pulled the troops out. But uh, there's still very much a major presence in the south. Yes, and they haven't taken out all their troops. I mean, they've taken the majority of their troops out. And I think most of the Sudanese who were in their pay are gone and the Colombians and others such like are long gone. Um, most of the Emiratis are gone after quite a few of them got killed, but they still have some troops and they still have sort of basically three positions that are military, um, which is one of them is Riyan Airport, which is the Mukalla Airport, and that has been turned into a prison and there's a lot of very nasty stories of torture and other nasty things happening there. Uh, another one is Balhaf, which is the gas export terminal, uh, which you know, belongs to Yemen LNG, which is largely owned by the French Total. Um, and that the government and the governor of Shabwa have asked them to evacuate this for a number of occasions and they're refusing to leave. And the third main position they're having in the south is in the middle, in the highland, well, midlands of Shabwa, and is, a milita- is actually simply a military base in the middle of nowhere. And that is there, I think, primarily to oppose the government positions and troops and to help the STC should they ever get that far again. So they are still there militarily and not just politically. Politically, the importance is that, you know, at the moment you effectively have a situation where the Saudis are supporting one major faction and the Emiratis are supporting the other. And And they are in opposition to each other. Well, yes, let us uh, turn finally then to Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, He is facing renewed pressure from the Biden administration. Joe Biden announced yesterday that uh, America is ending operational support for the war in Yemen. And uh, it may well follow that the designation of the Houthis as terrorists made by his predecessor, Trump, that will be rolled back. Is that enough to bring the war to a halt? 
Well, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, removing the designation is extremely important. It's extremely important for humanitarian reasons, you know, not only to cut the major problems that are arising, regardless of the licenses, etc., and which are primarily preventing emigrants and others from sending remittances to their families. So that means a lot of, you know, a lot of Yemeni families are now suffering because of this. So I think that's, you know, that is very important. I think the second importance, of course, is that, you know, this may be one of the reasons why the Houthis are, become, uh, are backtracking on this affair issue. But also it will make any potential negotiations much more difficult. So, you know, rescinding the, the designation is absolutely a positive move that should be done, you know, with the maximum speed. I think that's the first point I'd say on that. The second thing I would say is that my belief is that MBS is very much ready to get out and end the, his involvement in Yemen. Um, in terms of the aerial bombing, this has reduced considerably in the last few years. I mean, certainly 2019 had the lowest number, though 2020 had a lot more because of in response to the Houthi offensives in the northeast. But... Um, but I think MBS is ready to get out. He just doesn't want to be totally humiliated. And the issue is really, are the Houthis willing to let him out without humiliating him? And I think that that's a space where there is, you know, room for negotiations and, and such like things. The third thing I would say is that, you know, remove international military, open military involvement, i.e. the current involvement of the Saudi-led um, coalition, you know, with or without the Emirati bits, you are left with the Yemeni civil war. You are left with a multiplicity of factions and groups who are fighting and who've developed and improved their conditions thanks to the war economy. And so you still have a war there. And it won't necessarily be less murderous. You know, when people start fighting street to street and house to house, maybe a lot more people get damaged. Mm. Yeah, I wonder, Helen, if uh, a year from now we have this conversation that war will still be going on. Well, as I said, I read some literature, I forget the reference, unfortunately, which says that civil wars don't usually last more than 10 years. So if we're now, you know, getting on for finishing the, you know, into the seventh year, we've got another three or four to go. Not not a cheering thought, certainly not for my Yemeni friends and colleagues and certainly not for anyone who cares about the, the lives of these millions of people who are suffering because, I mean, they're suffering not just because of the blockade and the foreign intervention, but they're suffering because of their own, you know, atrocious leaders and warlords and such like, who are now largely controlling the situation in the country. Not a, not a happy prospect. Not a happy prospect, no. Helen, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, and um, hopefully somebody somewhere can do something to improve the situation. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Helen Lackner. Helen is a regular Digest contributor. Her latest book, due out later this year, is Yemen, Poverty and Conflict, published by Routledge. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. 
Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.